Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, my name's Steve, and I'm the host of the History of the Papacy podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. And today on The Exchange, I'm filling in for Tom And we have the wonderful Heather Tesco, the host of the Renaissance English History Podcast. Is that it? Or it's English? Yeah. No, it's it's like the most uncreatively named podcast ever in the history of podcasts. The Renaissance English History Podcast. And I'm really excited to fill in for Tom today. That's uh, very big shoes to to fill. And I hope I do your (laughs) podcast justice today. Oh, well. Big shoes for both of us, I guess. I, uh, I hope I can make some intelligent comments. Uh, much, probably much better, more intelligent. Um, well, the quest- the intelligent questions are the ones Tom wrote, and hopefully the ones that I added <laughs> in there are intelligent too, or at least somewhat. Excellent. And uh, so we might as well just dive in. When people hear the word Renaissance, and I'm probably among them, I think. Um, da vinci and michelangelo machiavelli the um like the really over-the-top popes even maybe cesare borgia like the whole show the borgias and we'll get into Uh um popular culture today of the renaissance um but definitely italy in the 15th century that sort of thing define maybe if you would just in a broad sense what do you mean by the english renaissance You talk about Italy in the 15th century. During that period, England was really busy killing all of their nobles with the Wars of the Roses. So there wasn't really a lot of time for painting and this Renaissance humanism expression uh, in their culture. But uh, this period that then England got on the bandwagon starting in around 1485 when Henry Tudor, who was this Welshman who was descended from illegitimacy on one side of his family and a queen marrying a squire on the other side of his family. Um, so he had really tenuous claim to the throne, but he beat Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth Field and founded the Tudor dynasty. And the Tudor dynasty, of course, would go on to be one of the most relative um, peaceful. It was the you know peaceful and, st- and stable time in England, and it allowed for this period of reform in every way: religious, economic, cultural. That really turned England from a medieval country to a place that we would kind of recognize as as early modern. And I often think that if we were dropped into England in around 1480. Not only would we be in a different country, but we'd be on a completely different planet. We would have a really hard time understanding anything that was going on. And by 1603, when Elizabeth's reign ended, just, you know, a hundred and some years later, we would still have a hard time. But if we wound up there, we would be able to recognize it at least as a foreign country. And we would probably be able to figure things out. It wouldn't be a completely different planet. And so I think that it's that period in the 16th century when England moves from being a medieval country into, you know, something that we would recognize as early modern, that I think that's the broad sense of the English Renaissance for me. And that, I think that leads well into the um, next question I was thinking is, how does the Renaissance in England fit into the larger context of the Renaissance? And maybe even more than that, what was the state of England, say, right at the, right before the Battle of Bosworth Field? Like, 
how was England perceived maybe throughout the rest of the continent? Mm. Yeah, so it was this kind of backwater edge of the world. I mean, it was interesting because I think the other countries, uh, France and Burgundy and all the low countries, as well as Spain, saw England as this kind of country that you could sort of mess around with. Like you could give support to one group that said they had a claim to the throne in order to more kind of like offend your enemy if you were at war with Spain or if you were at war with France. And that went on a lot where, you know, Edward IV would flee and seek refuge somewhere. And then Henry II would flee and people were kind of giving asylum to nobles just so that they could tick off the people that they were having fights with. And so it wasn't like people really took it seriously. And yeah, it was this really kind of backwards sort of place. By the end of the period, you know, you've got England having a navy that defeated the Spanish Armada. When Henry Tudor first took the, or, you know, beat Richard, he had a navy of less than 10 ships. There there was nothing. And, you know, he, he built this navy and then Henry VIII built a navy, you know, expanded it. And you get to this point that just two generations later, Elizabeth I was able to beat off the Spanish Armada and England is already dealing with going overseas and starting colonies and it is really a, a world power. And um, I think that what makes the particular brand of the Renaissance in England so unique has to also do with the the religious changes and how unique the Reformation in England was. And I know we're going to touch on that later because that's one of your questions. But it's interesting because, you know, Henry VIII was never a Protestant. He just didn't like the Pope. And so, you know, he kept a lot of the liturgy and and transubstantiation and all the different beliefs of Catholicism. And then you have his son sweeping all that aside and, and going far out for Protestantism. And then Edward dying and Mary the first coming in and having it all go back to, to Catholicism. And then Elizabeth coming and saying, all right, we're going to have like a middle of the road here. And it's a very unique sort of brand of Protestantism that you didn't really see in other countries because other countries, like I'm thinking Germany that and Switzerland that just embraced Protestantism so much. And they didn't have this kind of back and forth pushing and pulling within the period of, of decades. You know, somebody who was born early on in Henry VIII's reign would have grown up being a Catholic and then told that actually now he couldn't worship, he couldn't, um, you know, give any kind of respect to the Pope anymore. And, but everything else was still the same. And then suddenly everything had changed. But then wait a second, we're all back. And okay, well, now it's kind of back to how it was maybe, but not really. And I think that that, that kind of upheaval and, um, and constant changes in that for people, I think, makes it really kind of an interesting brand of, I don't know, the culture at the time. I think it makes it much, I think it makes it really unique. Uh, this was a question that I was thinking in there is that England was a powerhouse in the 12 and the 1300s, but that seemed to be more of a French version of English would were these would these um yeah they're completely English I guess you would say it by this point right yeah you know it's after the hundred years war in Agincourt and the you know the idea of war with France and um and that being such a a big deal is trying to capture these ancestral, you know, it makes it real. This is like way off topic, but the idea that the Norman invasion and those lords that came to England still had their lands in Normandy and in France made it really complicated there for a lot of, you know, for several hundred years until things kind of started evening out where you had people who had kind of conflicting ties where they had English lands and they had Norman lands and when the two came into conflict, who wins? And so um, I think you're right that, that the powerhouseness of England during that period was more a reflection of the French connection. And then after, you know, you start to see with the Hundred Years' War and everything that it like okay let's let's actually be against the french now which still exists i suppose maybe we can back up just a little bit you have an interesting background you're an american but you live in spain how did you come about doing a podcast about renaissance english history <laughs> so i had a unique 
um, way of coming into it. I, I fell in love with the English Renaissance through the music. And so I'll never forget in high school singing William Byrd's Ave Verum Corpus in chamber choir. And if people haven't listened to this piece of music, it's very easy to find. It's very famous. You can YouTube it. And William Byrd, so the story behind the piece in the story behind William Byrd was that he was a Catholic and he was living under a Protestant monarch. Queen Elizabeth was a Protestant and she had actually given William Byrd special permission to be a Catholic. So there's still letters where he talks about this permission that he had to, to practice his Catholicism. But a lot of what he did as a composer actually really kind of stretched his permission. He, one of the things he did was wrote in Latin, which was illegal kind of at the time he wrote masses that were designed to be used in the Catholic mass. And I always, I thought it was really interesting when I first heard about this, that here's this person who's this artist who there was just such anguish. And that piece of music, if you listen to it, there's such anguish in this piece of music. And it's like somebody who's clearly an artist who's all about self-expression and all about creating from his heart who couldn't do that because of these strange religious things that were going on at the time. And it made me really, it, you know, like when you're an angsty teenager, stuff like that really <laughs> appeals to you. At least it did to me. And it made me want to learn a lot more about the time period, about these kind of religious issues that were going on and what people were dealing with. And, and the music, I just fell in love with the music. And so after university, I majored in history. And after university, I moved to London and it was really for the music. And I spent my days going around my weekends using my young person's rail card, going around even song at, you know, places like Durham and Wells and Bath and all these places. And I actually worked right up the street from Westminster Abbey. And so every afternoon at promptly at five o'clock, I would race out from the office and I would race down Whitehall and go to Westminster Abbey for even song service during the week. And you know, I just kind of immersed myself in the music of the time and I actually started my own choir when I was there too. And having that experience of going to these places and hearing this music that was created specifically for that, you know, location and hearing it sung with the original acoustics and everything really made me want to learn more about the time period of this music that I loved so much. Given all that background, what's your unique perspective or insight? You're an expat American woman who's had all these experiences. What do you think brings special to the party? I was I was thinking about this and I thought that one of the things that I think, you know, there's a lot of English that's in popular culture right now. You mentioned the Tudors, but also there's like the whole Downton Abbey contingent and um, Mr. Selfridge and all these kinds of things. And I, and I think a lot of times in America, people have these kind of rose colored glasses about England, like it's all dinner parties and tea and crumpets. And when I lived there, I lived in like a really crappy bedsit in a house that had like 15 people living in it all divided up into, you know, crappy bedsits. And I'm sure if somebody had called the code, it would have been shut down. But I was like 24 and living in London. So I totally didn't care. But like, I've been able to look at the at the history and going around to English history with kind of less of these sort of rose-colored glasses than American than an American who hasn't spent that much time in England could. But also I feel like from the other side of it, I think that there's kind of this um, sense in England oftentimes the people are just kind of like they take it for granted. It's like they're sitting on the train and, you know, coming into Waterloo Station and Houses of Parliament are right there and Westminster Abbey's right there and they're just like, oh, the train's delayed. Oh, this is so terrible. And for me, it's still just like, oh my God, like, look, it's like we're surrounded by all this history and we're coming into Charing Cross, which, you know, has so much history around it. And this used to be a medieval monastery right here. And, you know, I still have that excitement that I think a lot of the people who are English don't necessarily have, but it still comes at it from a perspective of having lived there and not seeing it necessarily with the kind of like it's all wonderful tea and crumpets all the time kind of perspective. Yeah, I definitely think uh, being a newcomer to a place gives you a completely different perspective than the people who've lived there their whole lives. Like you said, it's just um, the train's late, the um, food in this part of town's 
stinks, you know, this whole, you know, that whole thing yeah. where, the, you know, they lose the romanticism about it. Yeah. The history and the fiction shelves are just um, completely filled with books about this time period with about the Tudors and, the, um, you know, that whole thing. And there's the movie A Man for All Seasons, which was very good. And uh, the movie about Elizabeth I with Kate Blanchett and um, all that. What do you think that um, what is it about this period that's really so it's grabbed the popular imagination so much. Yeah, you know, I I actually interviewed Allison Weir recently, one of these authors who's contributing to that, uh, and I asked her the same question, and I was really curious what she thought because she's written like I don't know seventy books or something, not quite that many, but close. And she just said, and I would agree, <laughs> is that it's just like the stories of the time period, right? I mean, like who needs a soap opera when you've got you know Henry the Eighth killing his wife who he was just leaving the the church to marry three years before and you know it's just these larger than life kind of people doing this larger than life kind of stuff I think you know starting with the wars of the roses in this period it's just it makes for such good drama and um and I think that part of that also is, like I said, it's England going through this kind of back and forth thing, pushing and pulling to become this modern country that we would recognize. And going through that process, there's just such amazing stories that you know, they're, they're kind of timeless. People have been telling these stories about Henry VIII for 500 years, and I'm sure they will keep doing that because it's just... Um, you know, the, the stories just really grip you, I think. And I think if people get inv interested in it through those kinds of stories and then want to keep learning and keep going deeper, they will, you know, find that the Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard stories are, are just the tip of the iceberg to what was actually going on. And, uh, and you know, there's a there's a lot to work with there. And I think people maybe start to get involved through the the really sensational parts of it. But then moving past that, there's still really amazing stories beyond that. Henry VIII is crazy. He's He was like literally larger than life. At the, We were at the Metropolitan <laughs> Museum in New York and they had a set of his uh, armor. And he was like... Let's say I'm about five eight ish average height. He towered the like the the um, armor towered above me, and it, I mean it was built like you would like a yeah. modern day like American football player. Yeah, you know, but it's interesting because people have this perception of Henry VIII as this you know really fat, corpulent guy with this swollen leg and everything like that, and you know that's only later Henry for the first. You know, until he got to his 40s, he was he was a hunk, you know, and and he was this amazing Renaissance man who was smart and who wrote music. And they, there's actually, you know, CDs of the people recording the music that he wrote. And it, it's it's pretty solid stuff. You know, it's it's not brilliant, but it's it's better than I could write. And, you know, it's, it's funny to think about this popular image that we still have of him or uh, that was the later version. And I sometimes wonder whether he's disappointed with that, whether he wants to say, no, like there was a lot more to me. And that was one thing I really liked about the tutors. The kind of one thing that, that I enjoyed about that series was that it, it showed well, with Jonathan Reese Myers, how can you go wrong? <laughs> But, you know, it showed this the hot Henry that people forget about a lot. And uh, but, yeah, he was he was like well over. He was like six and a half feet tall or something. He was enormous. And, and he had in his younger days, you know, when they see his armor, you can just picture him riding on this horse and jousting and having all the ladies swooning. And but then by the end, I think he had something like a 54 inch waist <laughs> or something like that. So, yeah. I there's actually a book um, called uh, there's a, Susanna Lipscomb wrote a book called 1536 that because that's kind of the year where he went from being hot Henry to this crazy tyrant and in part because of his jousting accident. And it was interesting to kind of trace that transition for him. And it's yeah. kind of cool to see that there's so much information about one person. You can see where like 
uh, events happen that cause like breakdowns or, you know, different issues where there's so many historical figures where there's not that much information and you got to kind of just guess like what, you know, why did they change in certain parts of their lives? Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because I think that's another reason why the Tudors are such a popular period too because, you know, there's there's periods before then, Eleanor of Aquitaine and, the, you know, with her children and, and everything that with her children rebelling against their father and her rebelling against her husband. And she, that was amazingly colorful stories, but there just aren't the records to be able to piece things together to the extent to, that there are with the Tudors. And it's the first time, you, you know, there's still so many letters and, and print, well, printing, you know, the printing press had come to England by that time. And so we still have so many records of, of things that earlier time periods just don't have. And so I, I imagine that it's easier for writers, not just of nonfiction, but also historical fiction to be able to put together stories with the information that they have where they might want to for other people, but there's just not enough out there. At first glance, you might think that your topic is seemingly maybe narrow or a little niche, but when you dig a little bit deeper, there's such a huge amount of things that you could cover, the maritime, the printing, art, mm-hmm. music, religion. Um, what do you or how would you dig into this and how have you decided to handle all this that's really very separate topics? Yeah, well, it's kind of random. <laughs> um, and uh, well, you know, I think that it's not really as niche or narrow. It, it is very broad, like you said, and I think that it holds a lot of interest because uh, Americans, you know, can identify more with with um, you know English history more than we could with say Russian history or places that might equally have the same amount of amazing stories, but it just doesn't resonate with Americans as much. Um, but what I've started doing with my podcast actually is looking at particular themes and threads in like more like mini series. So I did. You mentioned maritime. I did like a little four or five episode series on the rise of the Navy and how that affected the economy in, in Sussex with the, the wield and um, the little mini iron industry that was going on to build cannon for Henry's Navy. And so, you know, I try to like mix things up between looking at something kind of economic or war oriented and then switching it up and looking. Then I did another series on the theater and, you know, looking at, at something artistic and just kind of trying to go back and forth there for a while. I was really stuck in, in a medieval period and looking at early Tudor stuff. And is cause I was on personally reading, I was just reading a lot about the wars of the roses and I just was really going through that kick myself. And some people emailed me and they were like, when are you going to get onto Elizabeth's story? <laughs> I was like, I don't know when I'm done reading about Margaret Beaufort. I don't know. But um, now I keep a little now I keep a little Evernote and note. And I uh, and I so I try to just not necessarily go through chronologically because there's great podcasts the Agora, or the in, in the Agora podcast network. There's the history of England and there's the British history podcast. There's people who do this chronological thing. And and that's great. And I love those podcasts. And for me, I try to just more um, go through really deeply the things that are that are interesting to me at that point so it's kind of selfish but it is my podcast so i get to i get to do what i want that's what i like um particularly about yours is that it isn't a narrative it doesn't start at this date and then go on to that date and that's what (laughs) um you know i think it's your cat the listeners catching what you're really interested in, which is what I think what I like to hear. And I think what a lot of people like to hear is somebody talking about some topics that really interest them. And they're not just plowing through Mm -hmm. material, not that other ones aren't plowing through material, but I think that sometimes it can feel like, okay, it's da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I, 
You know, it's, I read this quote one time where people were talking about how, you know, whenever you discover an author, you then get this whole new group of friends because they like, it's metaphorically, but they like introduce you to all of their author's friends because they'll like mention this book or that book that influenced them, or you'll see things in the credits and the notes. And it's like that with me and, and history. And, you know, I start reading something and then it's like, well, wait, I want to learn more about that. Or I want to learn more about that. And then I have to just start keeping notes to myself of things I want to do episodes episodes on. And I kind of see my episodes as an excuse to read the books that I want to read. So and there's so many different threads to pull on. You have in literature, you have Shakespeare, philosophy, more Henry VIII um, with uh, the religious aspect and political. If you take it all from mm -hmm. a high up view, what aspect of the English Renaissance has had the greatest impact on the world today? That's such a big question. And if you asked 100 historians that you'd probably get 100 different answers, right? But for me, of course, so I'm an Episcopalian, which is Anglican. So I'm just biased to think it's the religion. <laughs> but I think that if you wanted to look at it, you could make a really good case for the changes to the economy that kind of laid the foundation for the way we work today. And um like I said, there was this in little industrial revolution going on and with the creation of the Navy. And uh, I also think that there's something really deep about the idea of challenging a monarch, that Henry VIII opened up this Pandora's box that he maybe didn't want to open up. I'm sure he didn't want to open it up, where he challenged the Pope. And it was the idea that absolute authority can be challenged um, and, you know, he did it in challenging the Pope. And I think then if you want to start taking that down through the ages, you get to enlightenment thinking and you get to, you know, the the philosophers like Locke who have, you know, are the foundations that our country, America, is is built on. And, you know, I think you could make a very good case for the idea of challenging the representative of God on Earth <laughs> And saying, like, if you can do that, where does it stop? Um, and and so I think that not just the the changes to religion, but this idea that you can challenge this person who's in absolute authority that had never, you know, but kings and popes argued for ages and all the way, you know, back since the first pope, I'm sure there were arguments with kings. But the idea that somebody, you could say, like, you're going to be excommunicated if you continue doing this. And somebody's like, eh, meh, who cares? I'm going to do it anyway. I think that that opened up something <laughs> for people that would go down. You know, we could directly trace that if we wanted to really look at that. Yeah, I think that um, it was such a unique time that there suddenly was another option that you didn't um you know not that even like during the um you know all different times uh local leaders might thumb their nose to the pope but eventually they would come back into the back into line with the church where they're the, now they have a third way and in a, a way that yeah. what um, Henry VIII, what probably started out as just political opportunism, it really did turn into another option of Christianity, that the Anglicanism blended in Catholic ideas in with Protestant ideas. And that English mm -hmm. version of the Reformation doesn't fit neatly into either of those two categories. I think that there probably be a lot of Catholics who are uncomfortable with what happened there and a lot of like Calvinist, hardline Protestants yeah. and uh, Reformation thinkers aren't really happy with it. What do you make of this yeah. with the Reformation that Henry VIII, um, what you might say, cooked up? <laughs> right. Well, I really love it. So, and that's in part because I love the choral music and, um, you know, it's a, it's a very unique brand of, of music and liturgy, like you talked about. And if, and again, I'm going to say, if anybody hasn't listened to the choral music of Renaissance England, you should totally go to my site and look at playlists and stuff like that. It's amazing. You should email me. I'll tell you all about it. I, I have episodes all about it. Um, but, you know, I, I actually personally I grew up in Amish country, which is, you know, kind of 
Protestantism on steroids, which is kind of like the um, severe Anabaptist. I, pro- Amish people used to come to my church on Christmas Eve because they didn't have Christmas Eve services in the Amish, you know, tradition because it's uh, too worldly. And so that's it's kind of extreme Calvinism and, uh, well, Anabaptists. And so I think that it's personally, I, I really love the Reformation of Henry VIII, that you can take something that that there's a lot of beauty in the Catholic Church, and then you can say, okay, but I don't agree with this part, and it's just kind of like choose your own religion, right? And um, and it, I think it's really unique and really beautiful, and I think it, in a lot of ways, it gives something to to both sides. But I, at the same time, it I'm sure angers people on both sides as well. Um, but I really like the idea of being able to to take the good from what you what you maybe see as the the good parts of each tradition and and being able to fold them together into something that's very different is that what they would call high church anglicanism that has more oh. of the um more liturgy more um yeah where, um, i guess so. whereas there was kind of a conflict but it, i don't know if it's necessarily during this renaissance period where um like pe- pe- people wanted to ban Christmas altogether and that sort of thing. Yeah, that was the Puritans, and they kind of the that was towards the English Civil War. So the Puritans started. Well, it's interesting, you know, because during the reign of Elizabeth, like, and even from the start of the Reformation, the monarchs were really just caught because they couldn't please anybody. If if they had gone back to being Catholic, then all the Protestants would have been seriously ticked off and, and back and forth. And, you know, there were a lot of rebellions during this time. And most of them were because uh, they, a lot, well, a lot of them were because like the pilgrimage of grace, because they wanted the old prayer books to be restored. But interestingly, there was an al- also a rebellion, Kett's Rebellion in Norfolk, where they didn't think things were going far enough and so they they thought that the ministers and the, the priests weren't familiar enough with Calvinist ideology and Calvinist thinking and I just think it's interesting this idea that they really couldn't please any side of it at the time and um yeah sorry my daughter just woke up from her nap and walked through and I got totally oh, sidetracked but she's gone back outside now <laughs> In addition to being a mom, first and foremost, I would imagine, you're also an Agorum podcast um, network member, and you have a a professional connection with the Tudor Times. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, well, yeah, so Tudor Times is one of the largest um, repositories of information, of Tudor information on the web that's freely available on the web. And they, they're very scholastic and academic, but making it uh, available for people at the same time to be able to read in an easy way. So I had read several articles that, you know, one of their founder had written and went to their site. It's funny because I actually had noticed that on their site, they have all these reading lists and movie lists, but they didn't have any music lists. And that's, of course, if you haven't been able to notice yet, that is my thing. And so I wrote to them and I was like, you really should have like a music store and you should have me curate it or something because it's like a missing. And so we just started talking and it turns out that they really had wanted to get into podcasting, but they didn't think they had the resources or kind of know how. So now we, I'm, I interview them every month for their person of the month. So every month they pick somebody to choose as their person of the month. And, and I interview them about that person and, you know, we kind of jointly promote each other's activities and we're putting together more more original content. So, you know, we can, we're, one of the things we're looking at is doing some original content on music and on some other things. And they're also, we're talking about them helping to promote the tours that I've put together too. So I ha- I do tours of the English choral tradition um, where we go around and listen to even song services throughout England. And so we're, you know, working together to, to make that um, more interesting, bring more academic kinds of resources into those tours as oh, well. Oh, wow, that's really exciting. Yeah. Moving on a little bit outside of um, English uh, history, you recently launched a new podcast, didn't you? I did. I'm wading into the world of politics. You and your uh, co-host are best friends from way back, Mm -hmm. 
and it's a political show and you two hold vastly different political views. Yeah. Is that challenging? Yeah. So we just launched it and it's called Heather and Heather Agree because we're both called Heathers and we've lived these really similar lives. She's traveled a lot. I've traveled a lot. We actually had our first babies nine days apart. She's gone on to have another baby, but her first was nine days apart from mine. And in a lot of ways, we're totally the same person, except she's a total conservative and I'm a total liberal. But we love talking about politics with each other. And it's interesting because it doesn't actually divide us. We don't get angry at each other. It just it makes it feel like our friendship is a lot deeper to be able to understand each other on this kind of deeper level. And we started talking politics for real in 1992 when our high school had a mock election and she was Bush and I was Clinton. And so that led to a lot of discussion and talking about, well, why do you believe this? And why do you think that? And through the years, it's just something we've always gone back to. And it's made our friendship really, really deep. And we have a lot of fun with it, too. But the thing is, in talking with her, what I really realized is that we're really similar. Like we're going down the same road. Like we agree on this. We agree on that. We agree. We agree. We agree on so much. And then we get to a stop sign and she turns right and I turn left. But it got me thinking that you don't really hear in the news much. Like there's all this talk about polarization and, you know, people like you're either a Democrat or you're a Republican or whatever. And we actually, I think as people, believe like or I think we actually agree on way more than we think we agree on and you know I think that it's kind of needed in these political times that we're in right now to have these conversations about unity and what you know kind of the areas where we can find agreement and just kind of seeing that we actually really agree on a lot and so every week the point of my podcast is the report of our podcast is that every um every episode so it's every couple of weeks but every episode we take a hot button political issue and we talk about it and we actually get to what we agree on and we look at these areas of commonality and that's what we focus on and we try and come up with some solutions that we could both be happy with without compromising our really deeply held beliefs and so the first one we did was abortion because you know why start small and then the next one we just finished doing one that i'm editing right now on black lives matter and police brutality And the next one we're going to do after that is environmentalism. And so, you know, we're trying to look at these issues, but it's interesting because some of them we actually can't do because we both agree, like immigration and trade. She's actually pro both. And so I am too. And so she's like, well, I guess we can't really talk about those because we, we we totally agree on them. Um, But, you know, in general, we're looking at these issues that she is a conservative holds very opposite in the end, you very opposite opinions. But when you actually break it down, we actually agree on way more than we think we do. Yeah, I definitely think that that's a big part is, um, like you said, everything's so polarized and people are, they're just trying to find reasons to disagree. Yeah. And there's a lot of crossover where you see different candidates who are on different sides agree with a lot of what they're saying with each other. And then there's other ones that's kind of hard to... Um, you know, put it all together, especially I think in this election where, um, you know, some candidates, like if you probably took the um, party label off of them, you'd be surprised with how much they actually agree on. Yeah. But it's like also it's so um, it's almost like if you're campaigning against somebody to to say, oh, well, you know, actually, I kind of agree with them on that. Like, you get in such trouble for that, right? Like people, would, mm-hmm. you know, and and so kind of the idea behind our podcast is looking at like sometimes the other side actually might have a point and um, which is like kind of a novel idea right now in this political climate that we're in. Um, but I think it's kind of those conversations are necessary to have just because it and I think also, you know, with Facebook and people just want to say stuff and get stuff off their chest and there's such vitriol and the 24-hour news cycle and I'm really anti the 24-hour news cycle and sensationalism and all. It goes way deep. Yeah. But anyway. I think that that's one of the things, um, uh, you know, they're always talking about like rights. I think the media, they should purposefully black out a story for like six hours and then report on it because they're all in such a rush to be the first one yes. to say whatever 
cockamamie thing they've heard. And then there's stories where you go back and like everything they said was completely wrong. Yeah. And that just serves to confuse people and it muddles everything where if they just waited six hours, then more more uh, truthful things could come out and you get a better picture of what actually happened. Yeah. And, you know, I think also having stuff be nonprofit, like with the BBC in England, um, you know, and, and I guess we have it to an extent with national public radio, but people all want to say, oh, well, that's partisan. So I, I just think that there's, it's in every, it's in all the media's self-interest to be first and to be sensational because that's what gets ratings. And I don't know mm-hmm. that, I think if you had like Heather and I on, you know, the new on on Fox News or MSNBC or whatever, and Rachel Maddow was interviewing us and we're like, well, hey, Heather, I really agree with you on that. Like, hey, I didn't realize, you know, actually you have a really good point about that. Like who would watch that? Right. Yeah. And that's the question. So that's why we made the podcast to see who would watch that. And local elections, like you see that it's so much, maybe that's part of the reason is that the president, it's so impersonal. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the things that the that happen at that level really don't immediately affect you. Like if in your local town, the um, park's all trashed out, right. that really affects you. And Or the school board the, and the school board saying certain books aren't good to be read or whatever. That really affects you. Yeah. 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 Yeah, or they're going to um, fire a million teachers or raise your property taxes, any of those issues that really affect you, like, immediately, you have, and you have more of a say in it. If I don't vote for the president this year, it's not going to affect anything where a couple of votes can really tip something in a local election, or if I go out and tell a bunch of my neighbors, I think that's part of part of the issue with the president is it's become it's just another sporting event. Yeah. And it, the campaign season is so I mean, it's like as soon as this election is over, no matter who wins, there's going to be like the talk about the next one in 2020. And it's just like, can mm-hmm. we just like get a break, <laughs> please? Yeah. Let's all just be friends again. You know. <laughs> like, Election night, there's very little different between election night and Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, it's the same level of hype. There's, you know, it's just different people, yeah. which is probably not great for democracy. And see, that's like where all the money comes in and the and that's like the money with the media, too. Right. Because you want to have Wolf Blitzer there making his announcements and looking all cool. And I don't know. It's just like that's all because of ratings and money mm-hmm. and the special interest yeah. and the lobbying and the money and the the amount that people spend on campaigns. I mean, you know what? If you took Donald Trump and his however many billions or whatever he has and Hillary Clinton and whatever amount of money she like what Donald Trump has, like 82 million dollars on hand right now. Could we just like take that and give that to some poor people rather than giving it to the media companies on advertising. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you guys both each just took that money and gave it to like poor people and just had some debates, like it'd be so much easier all around. I think. Yeah. It's, it's very bizarre. Yeah. Anyway. And on our way to wrapping things up today, you're also a, author, a published author. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been writing my whole life. And I, I started my first blog in 2002. And it's funny, it makes me cringe now. I was like single living in New York City. And I really thought I was Carrie Bradshaw only with a substandard <laughs> shoe wardrobe. And uh, at, it was, I, re- I really thought I was Carrie Bradshaw. It's really funny. But anyway, um, just this past year, I published my first two books, and the first one was actually a memoir that was in me that had to come out before I did anything else, and it was actually about the loss of my son at 21 weeks pregnant, and then our infertility journey after that, and I've actually heard from a lot of people that the story really touched them because either they're going through it or they went through it. And it's just this kind of like deep hurt that people just don't talk about very much. And I was trying to think about why. And I think it's in part because like once you're past it, you just don't want to think about it anymore, whether you got past it and had a child or you got past it and adopted or you got past it and just said, all right, I'm 
not going to um, have a child. However it is that you got past it, it's like you just don't even want to go there anymore. But then you kind of forget that there are still people who are still going through it and there always will be. And so I think it's important for people who have been through it to just continually talk about it and reassure the people who are in it that their feelings are valid and, you know, that they're going to get through it and whatever. And so I just sounded really California there and whatever (laughs) with the upward inflection. (laughs) But so anyway, that I, I wrote that memoir of our, of our journey with that. But then um, more applicable to my podcast is I wrote a novel that's a mix of historical fiction and chiclet. So a modern day woman gets caught in Cambridge in 1539 and has to navigate her way back. But 1539 in Cambridge was actually kind of a pivotal time, um, right? With the Cambridge was a kind of hotbed of Protestantism and 1539 was when Cromwell, well, 1540 was when Cromwell fell. And so there was a lot of forces trying to um, get rid of the Protestantism. And uh, so she finds herself in a very perilous circumstance in, uh, so it's, it's called uh, sideways and backwards, a novel of time travel and self discovery and uh, yeah, available at all. All bookstores everywhere. <laughs> Did your memoir start off as a catharsis for you, or yeah, or was it intentional to maybe help out other people? I, you know, I wanted to write. I always knew I wanted to publish it, and I always knew I wanted to be really raw with it. So it's funny because some of the reviews, like some people, really hate it because I'm really, really honest, and there's parts of it that are really ugly, and um, and. It's interesting because I like I look at the reviews on Goodreads and stuff every once I try not to look at reviews, but every once in a while I look at the reviews on Goodreads and people either really love it because it, it really validates how they're feeling or, you know, something that they maybe can't express it, but they felt it at you know, or are going through it, or people are just like, why did she have to throw up all over the pages? And I think that those people who think that, like, they shouldn't read the book, like, that's fine. Like, that, that's their thing. But I really wanted, I guess I really wanted to, um, to give voice to the hurt. And, you know, that period, and, and when you're in it, you know, I was in that period of infertility and losses and stuff for, for us, it was only three years. And I know people who've been, you know, who went through it for 10 years. And, and when you're in that, it's just like, you think you're never going to get out of it. You just think like, this is just how life is. This is, it's just, it's just painful. And it's just trying to get pregnant and it's medical procedures and it's drugs and it's going to the fertility clinic and being, told that it didn't work this month or you know you start to know all the medical terms for your follicles Mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff and it's just like and you and that's like your world (laughs) and and then you know it's like month like this monthly heartbreak you know for women it's like every month you go through it again and it's just like every month there's this heartbreak again and you're just sad and upset and devastated all over again and and you just when you're in that it's like that's all there is in the world. And then you get through it and it's like, you realize like, Oh, look, there's like trees and flowers and life. And, uh, I think that a lot of people who are going through it, like they maybe need to, like, it's, I feel like it's important to validate. So to show the ugly and to show like, this is what was going like, this is what, how my marriage was. This is how I was. This is what I did. This is how I felt. And, you know, like there were even times when I was really, really angry at my unborn baby for not showing up. Cause I was just like, like, screw you. You know, there was, it was like that CeeLo green song is popular. Can beep that up. But F star C K U. And there were actually yeah. times when I thought that because I was like, you know what? You have such great parents here. You have such a great situation. We would love you so much. Like, screw you for not showing up this month. Right. Like, just what are you even doing? And and I think like some for some people that might be harsh to think like that. Like, how could you think that about your child, especially when you want them to come so much? <laughs> but I think, yeah. it's like, you know, this kind of really natural thing that um, people maybe who do think that like need to hear that, that that's okay and that you're going to get past it and it's not how life is going to be forever and it's a phase and it's a time of life and it's a season and, and the leaves will come back on the trees no matter what happens. 
Well, I really enjoyed talking with you today, and I think we learned a lot more about your show. And Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I learned a lot about my personal history. Yeah, that too. Well, we, you know, you are definitely a Renaissance woman doing a Renaissance podcast. If people want to learn more about your show and uh, all your different projects, where can they uh, reach you? Well, the show website is uh, www.englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com. And that'll get you. There's like links to my blog and links to all my projects and stuff there. So you can go there and and you'll find me everywhere all over the interwebs. Well, thank you again for uh, joining us on the exchange. And we hope to we'll definitely be hearing from you soon. Hey, thank you so much. This has been fun. I'm so glad to be part of Agora. I am. I love you guys. (laughs) I love Agora. Agora is great. That's for sure. Great podcast, too. And you can learn more at agorapodcastnetwork.com. Yay. Awesome. Take care. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.